Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell. I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. I'm delighted to welcome our guest for this podcast, Peter Kaminsky, well-known writer. He wrote Underground Gourmet for New York Magazine for four years, and his outdoor column appeared in the New York Times for 20 years. He's a longtime contributor to Food and Wine and former managing editor of the National Lampoon. He's written extensively on food and food-related issues, including a number of other topics he's written about. And his, his new book is called Culinary Intelligence, The Art of Eating Healthy and Really Well. And it's an extremely interesting and novel book based on a combination of what he knows about food and his own personal experience. Welcome, Peter. I'm very happy to have you here. It's great to be here, Kelly. Thank you. So what was the impetus for this book on culinary intelligence? Life insurance. I, uh, over the course of being a food writer, I put on about 30 or 40 pounds. And I uh, went to get my life insurance renewed, and I was diagnosed as pre-diabetic, high blood sugar. And I was rejected. And my physician and my insurance agent, both who have an interest in my continuing, uh, said, I'll lose weight. Um, and so I began to try and do that. And so what did you find as you were going through this process of losing weight, which most people find pretty discouraging and, and find it uh, isolating and restrictive? Well, I have to say, I feel like many things in America or in modern society, we overcomplicate it. Uh, it can be rather simple. If you're trying to find magic bullets of balancing nutrients and, you know, juice fast one day and three pieces of lettuce the next and then a blowout on the weekend, it's hard to keep track of. Um, so, and we can talk about it at greater length. What, what, what I came down to, like many people say these days, was I got rid of the white stuff which was, you know, white rice, white pasta, although I will return to that, and I can explain it doesn't have to completely go away because that depressed me. Uh, uh, sugar, um, and, and sugar comes into the class of refined ingredients like white flour uh, that instantly uh, spike your blood sugar and get turned into fat. Um, and then the other, you know, the other parts of that are are um, eat really full-flavored ingredients uh, the best you can afford because those are going to tend to satisfy you. And if you're going to have a healthy diet and stay to it, uh, you need to cook or, as I say, live with someone who does because eating out is one of, great, one of life's great pleasures, you know, with friends and all. And it's not necessarily bad for you. But you can also, in the thrill of the moment, succumb to temptation and and uh, and the seductiveness of uh, of great chefs, and you're gonna you're gonna put the weight on. So it wasn't that hard. In fact, it it surprised me because in the six months that I took off 25 pounds, I took off 25 pounds. I cut down on on drinking um, to two glasses of wine a day. And uh, did those things that I just said you, you need to do in regards to processed ingredients. And I wrote uh, a cookbook with Francis Malman, the great Argentine chef, lots of meat and red wine. And I also wrote a dessert cookbook with uh, another illustrious chef, uh, Michel Richard. I just tasted my way through that. And I took off 25 pounds. So you can be around 
great stuff. It, listen, it takes some discipline. The hardest thing for me was pizza because I'm a writer, which means I sit at my desk until I'm going to faint. And then because I live in Brooklyn, I can run out and get some great pizza. So you say, okay, I'll go get a slice of pizza. No one ever goes and gets a slice of pizza when they're hungry. You get two slices of pizza. And I, my brother Donald, who's a physician, did the uh, culinary math for me and uh, meant I was taking in probably an extra 3,500 calories a week. So on a normal person's diet, I was eating eight and a half days every seven days. Um, but I, you know, that 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 everyone probably everyone probably has a target of opportunity like that in their diet. And, Let me uh, ask them about the discipline issue because it's so interesting here. Um, you have an occupational hazard, as you've described it. You're around the the best food in the world all the time. You've written books, as you said, with some of the world's best chefs, and you're at the best restaurants, and this food's around. And yet, at one point, you didn't have the discipline to stop it, and now you do, and you. You mentioned this signal event, the life insurance thing that got you interested in. But now it sounds like you can be around that food, but just taste it, as you said, and just have small amounts. How hard is that? And and is that the sort of thing you think other people could do routinely? Well, other people can do it because I know other people have done it. Thomas Keller's dad, the great chef Thomas Keller, French Laundry and Per Se, uh, his father, I think, was like 275. He was a retired Marine. A lot of white bread, just, you know, a lot of all that stuff. And uh, Thomas said, well, Dad, why don't you just stay with us? And uh, this is out in, in Yountville, California. And eat with my staff. We have family meal. It's always fresh vegetables. It's always whole ingredients. And uh, that's how you should eat. And his father did. And over the course of, you know, not a long time, took off 45 pounds. So it's doable. I don't mean to minimize by any means how hard it is for some people. Because if you have, as you have pointed out, our food culture in America has pointed us towards foods that are, it's not an overstatement to call them highly addictive. And addictions are hard to break. Uh, sugar, we are addicted to sugar. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> the amount of calories we ingest in sugar, especially you know re refined sugar, is enormous. I don't know what percentage of our diet it is, 20%, 30%. It's enormous. Um, so yeah, it, it can be hard. But if you get in the groove, it's like exercising. You can do it, and, and it's not really that painful. Occasionally you pass some things up, but... Uh, you know, it's not that I'll never have ice cream again. I do from time to time. I have pizza from time to time. But it's not my daily habit. So although it's a challenge for people, I don't think it's impossible or that hard um, if you really want to do it. And I think it's self-reinforcing. You start to feel better. I, 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 I said in the book, and I experienced it before I wrote it, one day the FedEx guy came, and I live in an apartment building, a brownstone, and I went downstairs and signed for it, and I found myself taking the stairs, you know, two at a time, kind of fast. I thought I was long past that, um, and it was the lack of weight that, that did it for me. So there's things that make you feel better about it. So let's go back to the concept of flavor that you mentioned. 
Um, some people have said, but I don't think with any scientific basis, that um, you can feel satisfied with a lot less food if you have a lot of flavor in the food that you eat, that, that somehow the, the sensation of good flavor can make you feel full, and you, then you don't have to make up for lack of flavor by the quantity of food. Does that concept make sense to you? It's, the, it's absolutely the, the fundamental mental basis of this book. I, I call it flavor per calorie. And when I say the best, full, most full-flavored ingredients you can afford, that doesn't necessarily mean the most expensive. The feeling you're talking about, the uh, scientists call satiety, rhymes with society. And what will give you that sense of satiety uh, mo- quickly uh, without n- the need to resort to doctoring it up with a lot of uh, sugar, fat, salt. A lot of salt's going to make you want to eat more. And uh, it's the basic flavor in the ingredients that human beings evolved to eat. So let me ask a question about this. You, um, your book, is Culinary Intelligence, is filled with ideas, essentially, how to go out in pursuit of flavor. What are some of the pieces of advice you give people? If somebody isn't used to thinking this way about their food, how would they go out and find flavor? Well, seasonal produce, there's no substitute for it. Uh, you know, produce means fruits, too. You know, it just doesn't mean rutabagas. Um, and they're there. They're there to be bought. You know, if you have a farmer's market near you, that's terrific. If you have a garden in your backyard, that's probably even more terrific. Those ingredients, Kelly, you and I had a dinner that Dan Barber prepared for us at at, uh, Stone Barns. And and the course that I'll never forget was a pressed parsnip. I mean, that sounds like a Woody Allen joke. But this thing was caramelized and succulent and soft and sweet. And it was just a parsnip. But it was raw. I mean, it, had been, it was recent. It hadn't traveled too far. It was seasonal. And it was just prepared in such a way to extract the most flavor from it. So the second part is you need to cook it well. You, you should cook. And if, and if you don't cook, you should live with someone who cooks. Well, we'll come back to cooking in just a minute. But actually, that meal had, that we had at, at Dan Barber's restaurant, and he's a brilliant chef and obviously Absolutely. very accomplished had a profound impact on me in a number of ways. But what was so amazing was how much flavor one could get from very small amounts of food. And that this explosion of flavor that came in that meal, course after course, was so impressive from foods that you wouldn't ordinarily associate with incredible flavor, like a carrot or beets, let's say. But if prepared in the right way, it really makes a difference. And the other thing that impressed me about that meal was that we, we learned a lot about the food that we were being served. We learned the story of it and when it was harvested and how it was grown and, and what kind of a breed it might have been and things like that. And that made a big difference, too. It helped bring it alive, I thought, understanding its story. Yeah, and it wasn't done in the officious way that, you know, it often can be. Chef has prepared for you a, you know, delectation of... It was... Uh, Listen, every kid sits down with mom and reads, you know, A is for apple and B is for beet and G is for goat. 
we have a natural affinity for these foods that sustain us and a natural affection for them. And when the story is told, and we have a natural affinity for stories. So when someone comes to your table and tells you the story of something, you have an emotional connection to it right away, and that transfers to your experience on the plate. Just think, think how much people can charge us for a bottle of wine because they tell us where it came from and, you know, what year and what it tastes like. And uh, that's just one simple food substance, fermented grape juice. When you apply that same logic with less pretension to all the foods that we eat, you, ju- you want to hear about it. It's great. You know, when you're, you're talking about food as food rather than food as its constituents. So, uh, you know, a lot of people now are, are it's what Michael Pollan calls nutritionism, are, are eating, t- uh, eating foods not so much because they want the food or they like the food because that particular food delivers some nutrient, like pomegranate juice might deliver something you think is beneficial. Or some people are out in search of as many antioxidants as they can get and stuff like that. And you could easily see how that would ruin the experience of eating and interacting with food. It's hogwash. I really think it's hogwash. Not the nutrients. Human beings don't consume, never did, nutrients in isolation. They're there in food to be absorbed in concert in incredibly complex ways. Uh, although we very unsubtly experience them as taste and flavor and texture. You know, for example, I say, you know, avoid white sugar. But sugar in an apple or in a, a plum, you know, that's a, 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 that you ingest with the, the, the fiber, you know, of the fruit, is, doesn't go straight to your bloodstream. You know, it's sweet, it gives you some energy, but it's absorbed over time. So I think deconstructing food into its nutrients is, is, is dangerous. I don't think it's going to lead to better health or better nutrition. And it certainly just gets you crazy because you have this like scorecard, like a, you know, like a, a, a bird watcher on methadrine trying to check off every species. You know, it's, it's there in the food. Eat a balanced diet and a fresh, wholesome food. You're going to get it. Well, that's what a lot of nutritionists will say, that if you... If you seek out healthy foods, if you're eating whole grains and getting a lot of fruits and vegetables, avoid junk food and things that you're likely to get the the right mix of nutrients that you need. Well, that goes back to your first question about how hard it is. It's really simple. We tend to make it hard by introducing this nutrient scorecard or overly rigid diets that take spontaneity out of the food experience. it's, it, it's, you know, eat the good stuff when it's in season. So you mentioned that it was beneficial to either cook food or live with somebody who does. Um, let's talk about cooking and why that's important. Now, one of the reasons you mentioned it's important is that it's very hard to eat healthy if you're eating out all the time. Um, what sort of pitfalls do people encounter when in the restaurant world? Well, I want to preface that by saying, you know, most of what I know I've learned from great restaurant chefs. They understand food. Um, most, many of us, though, when we go to a restaurant, choose, choose it as a free pass from real life. Uh, and more and more, more and more Americans are doing that more times during the week. You don't get that many free passes. But we go for the calorie-laden, sauce-laden, you know, extravagant stuff. 
And you know, you're a restaurant, you want to stay in business, you're going to offer that to people um, because you want them to come back. You want them to enjoy it. You know, although I love butter, uh, drowning something in butter, you know, it's going to make a piece of fish great, but uh, you know, that's an easy fix. better fix to me is sautéing in a little bit of butter and getting a nice crust on the fish. So there is a predisposition for re really great restaurants to include among the things they offer stuff that's extravagant from the calorie level. Then, since we live, uh, did I use the word hogwash once already? Can I use it twice? Use it as many times as you want. Yeah. <laughs> it's hogwash to think that we need or should or would want to cook the way competition, uh, you know, reality cooking, uh, you know, with towering food and weird combinations of ingredients have uh, made us think. That's not what cooking is about. I never understood why there are cooking competitions or fishing competitions. I like to sit in my kitchen, stand in my kitchen, take some time and cook. I like to be by myself on a stream and fish. I, I mean, it gets me away from competition. But it makes good TV, apparently, and people watch it. Now everyone thinks they got to cook that way. Um, in the home, you're always going to be frustrated because guess what? They don't cook that way. There's an army of people behind them chopping little things just so it's ready at that time. Uh, and it's, you know, and, and, and no one, and, and you don't have a food stylist at home who can pile it up so that the celery shaving lands just so on the side of the, the piece of fish. It, it's, just, it's just not a way to cook. But yet we feel we fall short of the mark if it doesn't look like the thing we saw on Chopped or Top Chef. And it also means you've got a generation of young chefs who've really studied hard to learn their craft who think, you know, it's, it's NASCAR cooking. You know, it's stock car. It's, you need to do it fast and loud and, you know, demonstratively. And cooking is about a relationship between the person, and I don't mean this mystically, although maybe I do, the person cooking and the ingredients he or she is cooking with to make that it's like playing an instrument you want to bring the most that that ingredient has to offer you and to delight you um, and that's not about racing the clock or or piling it you know 36 inches high on the plate so are you one of the experts that bemoans the fact that fewer and fewer people understand how to cook well I'm one of the people who do <laughs> uh, yeah, I, isn't isn't that changing somewhat in America? I don't know. I mean, I I know there's more people involved in cooking, although the obesity epidemic in America, which is, you know, hamburger hamburger bun, French fried and soda fill, you know, fueled, maybe says we're not. Um, you know, it might be coming back a little bit, but I mean, most people look back to you know the '40s and '50s and even to the '60s and thinking that so many more meals were eaten at home and so many more people learned to cook from their parents, that there were home ec classes and schools and that all of that kind of thing is of the past. And so, there, you know, it might have bottomed out and started back up in the right direction, but boy, the number is still pretty low. Well, you know, and the thing that I hear sometimes, well, you're a writer and you're a food writer and you're home, you, you, you can do it and we can't. And 
I don't buy it. I, I, I don't buy it. Well, I mean, one of the things you need to realize, and I sound like the press agent for this book, uh, but Tamar Adler's uh, Everlasting Meal uh, argues at greater length and more eloquently than I do, but I write about it. Nobody says that you have to cook just for one meal or eat it all during that one meal. When I roast the chicken, I roast two of them. You know, if nothing else, I can micro it up and it tastes great the next day, or I can use it in a risotto, or I can use it in a salad. Uh, if I buy you know, asparagus are in as we speak now in 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 uh, early, it's still early May, mid May. Um, I like to roast asparagus. Well, guess what? I would, you know, for one night, we probably would eat one asparagus roastation. Mm-hmm. Now I roast two, and then you have it for the rest of the week. You cook the vegetable when it's, it's, at, peak, it's at its peak of flavor, and then you can eat it a few days later, rather than leaving it in the fridge to lose flavor and then cooking it. So uh, one-pot meals. One-pot meals can go time after time after, t- after time, and then when the gravy, and then when it's done, you can cook some whole grain in it or some pasta in it, you know, in, in, in the gravy. So y- y- you may not be able to come in, throw something in the microwave, and watch telev- television for five hours if you're cooking, but, uh, you know, it doesn't have to take that long. Plus, I've read many... Uh, you know, exercise theorists say just the fact of standing up would do so much for America's health. I mean, it, it, it puts demands on muscles that sitting don't. And sedentary behavior is really dangerous, and you stand up when you cook. Finally, it's a great pleasure. I, like many food writers, have run up against editors most editors over the years saying that's too complicated or it takes too long it's got to be in and out of the pan in eight minutes if you like to cook I, I like to cook nothing I like better than taking all of Sunday to make something have the NFL game on you're cooking you're chopping you're tasting I mean when I'm done cooking then I have to find something else to do it gives me great pleasure so um it's there for all the right reasons. Would you talk a little bit more about the, the relationship with the food? So you say that there, there can be a special relationship between the person preparing the food and the ingredients themselves. Um, and, you know, it, it almost starts to sound like a, like a family dynamic, if you will, that, you know, there's different chemistry that goes on between people when they're mixed together, and there's different chemistry between ingredients when they get mixed together. And if they, the things come together in the right amounts and the right timing and all that sort of thing, it can be completely magical. And you're talking about creating something from scratch that can just be a wonderful experience and that not only is the outcome of it a, a fine meal worth pursuing, but that the process is very gratifying itself. It's a very different way of thinking about food than most people have, which is let's get this done with as fast as we can, or if we go out, let's get as much on our plate as we can for as little money as Well, look at most traditional societies, certainly at European societies. Sunday comes, what happens? The entire family's together, and they're cooking all day. Now, listen, this is their day off. You know, there's no law that says people have to do this. It's something they choose to do because, well... The commensalism, uh, you know, at the heart of the sacrament 
<clears throat> the Last Supper, for example. But, you know, the act of people sitting down and having a cooked meal together is one of the great bonding uh, practices open to human beings that we, we feel better towards our, our fellow humans. You know, you get a sense of bon ami that a little bit of wine and some nice food makes you have. Cooking together. Listen, everybody knows you have, you spent all this money fixing up your dining room or your living room, and everybody shows up in your shrimpy kitchen, and there's 20 people in there because they want to be around the cooking. So it's, uh, it's fundamental in human nature that we gather together to cook together and eat together, and it makes us feel better. And when we don't do that, I think we get isolated from one another. You know, you have time to get down on yourself. Um, so I can't say enough about why it's, why it's important for us. You're talking about different attitudes, different ways of thinking that our whole society may need to have about food. Slower, more deliberative stronger relationship between the people and where their food came from them, uh, better knowledge of the story of the food and who grew it and things like that. Are you optimistic that things are moving in this direction? Well, yes and no. It's like Apple computers. I've been a, a Mac guy forever. You know, 20 years ago, I said, we're a little dying remnant. But, you know, it's a quality, elegant product, and it it centrally speaks to people, and I find it satisfying. So... You know, I once thought we were just going to be a little sliver of, you know, folks who had to go to Whole Foods, you know, or went to Whole Foods. Um, the rest was going to go to hell in a handbasket. But certainly there's more interest in food and more interest in ingredients, more interest in farmers' markets. Although they have their limits, I think we, we, we need more middlemen brokers for groups of farmers. So they can pet all their wares without taking a day off to put their overall on and look farmery and come to the city. Um, but there are, there, there are good signs. At the same time, you know, there's a thing uh, Barry Popkin has written about at uh, North Carolina called the nutrition transition, which is what, is what happens when the Western, really the American diet, is adopted in uh, in, in countries be becoming newly a newly affluent. Well, the rate of o increase of obesity in India and China is astonishing. I think there's almost as many overweight people in India as there are people in the United States. The, numbers, not, the numbers are staggering. Yeah. Uh, countries that have been held up to us as examples of the virtues of the Mediterranean diet, you know, uh, Italy, Spain, France, well, yeah, Italy, Spain, southern France, at least, certainly. Um, a lot of soda, a lot of burgers, a lot of white flour. Um, and their obesity rate is going up. So, it, you know, history's never one thing or the other. Is this a place where you think the schools could play a positive role? Absolutely. What would you see happening in schools differently than what's going on now? Well, you know... Home ec is no longer offered. Now, home, home ec had its good and its bad parts. Home ec was basically prepare, preparing women not going into the workforce to be efficient homemakers. Uh, and it really limited, uh, you know, their perspective and their, their, their 
where, where they could go in life and sort of program them onto the, the mommy track, which is a fine track, but not practical for a lot of people these days. But cooking education in the schools, I, I took home ec, by the way, and I'll never be a mommy so far as I mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, the, these, these programs that are involving students in growing things and then cooking them in green walls. I mean, in inner cities, there's just stuff happening all over the place. Um, in fact, inner cities have been a good... Well, cities are great, okay? I'm a city guy. I think cities really make great things happen. It's, it's out in drive-everywhere suburbia they, that it gets tougher. But I do think, um, you know, I, I think uh, uh, Michelle Obama has really, you know, she's trying to help turn a battleship or an aircraft carrier. So it's, you know, what, what's the term? Festina lente, to make haste slowly. But I think she's been a great spokesman, uh, spokesperson. Um, and there's so many chefs who are doing things in the schools with kids, things with prisoners, things with vets. So out of this ferment, my hope is some kind of more broad programs are going to arise that, that we can practice everywhere. We're not there yet, but it's possible. Seems like there are a lot of positive signs. <clears throat> the what's going on with the White House is an example with the White House garden, and as you said, Michelle Obama being such an effective spokesperson. Uh, many schools around the country have um, farm to school programs now, or school gardens, and you're seeing more and more of this, which I think is a very positive sign. So I think the trends look good, and and I think books like yours will really help move that along. Um, you know, Peter, you're one of the people I admire most in this field for writing about these things in such a beautiful and articulate way. And you bring together such a nice perspective of your own experience with what you know about food and the restaurant world and things like that. So I can highly recommend your book, Culinary Intelligence, and uh, would urge people to go get a copy. So thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Kelly. So our guest today was Peter Kaminsky, well-known writer and author of Culinary Intelligence, The Art of Eating Healthy and Really Well. Uh, Please visit our website, www.yalerudcenter.org. And there you'll find a variety of resources on food policy issue, including a newsletter that gets dispatched out at no cost, of course, with breaking issues in the food policy world, and also a list of the other excellent podcasts that we've recorded over the years at the Rudd Center. Thank you.